0: Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your word when it is preached. And we humbly beseech you now that as it goes forth via preaching, may it run unencumbered, unhindered, May it melt the hearts of all who are gathered here this day. May it be glorified for the sake of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and for his blessed, blessed sake we pray these things. In his name, amen. I'll invite you this morning to take God's word and let's turn. John chapter 1 John chapter 1 As we look today at what I have entitled Life in the Sun Life in the Sun John chapter 1 I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 through verse 5 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. May God bless the reading of his holy word and the teaching that now follows. Why did the Apostle John compose his gospel account? What was the primary purpose driving everything John wrote concerning the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in his first advent? Well, in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, the apostle spells out his purpose in the plainest of terms. He writes this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There are three things which John tells us in his purpose statement. First, what we should believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of of God. Second, why we should believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It is due to the signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. In other words, the miraculous signs John has recorded which testify to the authenticity of everything Jesus claimed should give clear proof as to why we should believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Lastly, what are the results of believing Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Well, John says that by believing, you may have life in His name. Notice what John doesn't say. He doesn't say that these things are written so that you may believe the right thing or that you may be orthodox, or that your theology may be sound, all of which are vastly important, yet they are not an end in themselves. No, what John says is that the ultimate consequence of believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is that you may have life in His name. The implication of these words is simply this. People who don't have Christ don't have life. To have the life, therefore, that God created us to have can only be found in His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. So it should be no surprise then that as John opens up his gospel account with this said purpose behind everything he will write, he begins with underscoring the profound reality of who Jesus Christ really is as the eternal Son of God. And five weeks ago, it's hard to believe, five weeks ago, this is where we started. with Chapter 1, verse 1, as we began to see the case John makes for why Jesus Christ is in fact the eternal Son of God. From this single text of Scripture, we saw four reasons John makes to prove this truth concerning Christ. First, he is pre existent. Second, he is the personal revelation of who God is. Third, he is a person distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit who are God, yet, one with them. And then forth, He is by nature God. This morning, we will conclude unpacking the reasons John gives us for believing that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God by considering two more principal truths relating to this fact that we find in verses three through five. And the first of these principal truths is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God because He is God the Creator. He is God the Creator. Reading verses 2 and 3. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In verse 2, John is simply reiterating what he said of Jesus in the first two clauses of verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Two points are reemphasized here. First, the preexistence of Christ, that in the beginning he always was with God. Hence, the eternality of Christ is never to be overlooked or diminished under any circumstances. He is no mere mortal man. He is by nature the eternal God. Second, John is highlighting again the perfect unity, the oneness in relationship within the eternal Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He was, in the beginning, with God. pros face-to-face, in perfect harmony with the Father and the Spirit, the eternal Son, was always in undisturbed, unopposed communion with God. But following the recapitulation of this truth in verse 2, John then moves on to verse 3 to make a staggering claim, yet... Not a surprising claim concerning Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3 again. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What John is saying, in short, concerning Christ, is that everything owes its existence to him. Everything. This doesn't mean, of course, that Christ is the solitary creator of all things. No, the act of creation is an act of the eternal Godhead as a whole. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together brought everything into existence. Yet here in John 1 and verse 3, the point stressed by the apostle is that it was through Christ as the divine acting agent that all things were made. In fact... A better rendering of the Greek in this text is that all things through him, out to, that's an emphatic pronoun, all things through him exclusively were made, and what was made was in no way made without him. Thus is the eternal God, Christ is God the creator, no different than the Father and the Spirit. But perhaps the most comprehensive statement in the New Testament making this claim is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I would invite you to open up to Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I want you to see this for yourself. In this passage, Paul the Apostle writes this concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, For by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What Paul the Apostle gives here in greater detail is what John writes in summary fashion. Creation, in its fullest and most unqualified sense, is credited to Jesus Christ. Let's break this down a little more as it's revealed here in Colossians chapter 1. Through Christ all things were created. First of all, Paul tells us, in heaven and on earth. There was nothing limited to the realm of the creative agency of our Lord Jesus Christ. As one writer aptly put it, every form and kind of matter, simple or complex, the atom and the star, the sun and the clod, every grain of life from the worm to the angel, every order of intellect, and being around and above us, the splendors of heaven and the nearer phenomena of the earth are the product of Christ in heaven and on earth. Second of all, through Christ all things were created visible and invisible. Visible and invisible. This simply means that whatever exists, that we can either see by tangible vision or what we cannot see owes its life to Christ. Whether it's the hundreds of billions of stars and the myriad of galaxies that exceed the vastness of the universe that our vision has barely seen and identified or the darkest depths of say the Pacific Ocean which reach 36,200 feet, visible or invisible, all these things, all these things were created, were created through Christ. Third of all, through Christ, all things were created whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. This language is referring to the angelic host in all their different realms, whether serving in the immediate region of God's throne like the seraphim or those who serve like Gabriel to minister to God's people. These supernatural ministering spirits owe their existence to Jesus Christ. Through him, through him, they were created. And what this simply tells us about our Lord Jesus Christ is that while there is no Adam too small, neither is there no creature too enormous for Christ to create and hold together as well as rule and control. Thus Paul tells the Colossian church, that all things were created through Christ and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. New Testament scholar John Edie summed this up in the following way. Let no one say Jesus is an inferior agent. The universe was created in him. Let no one surmise he is but a latent source. It is by him. Let no one look on him as another's deputy. It is for him. In every sense, he is the sovereign creator. His is the conception and himself the agent and end. So in summing this up, John chapter 1 and verse 3 is telling us that through and by the person and work of Jesus Christ, in the beginning with God, did the universe with all its complexity, vastness, and order come into existence. We live, we move, we have our Being because of Jesus Christ. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ then is the eternal Son of God because he is God the Creator. In the second place, as we turn to verses 4 and 5 here in John 1, we see further. That Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God because he is the source of all spiritual life and light. Reading verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In these two verses, we're introduced to two of John's favorite terms and themes in his writings. They are life and light. Like a musical motif that appears at the beginning of a musical work to only reappear throughout the song to identify a recognizable theme. Just think for a moment of Beethoven's fifth symphony with its four world famous notes at the beginning which resurface throughout you know dun 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 all right this is what we find here in john chapter one verses four and five with the terms life and light they keep reappearing throughout the entirety of this gospel it's a motif a literary motif for instance this word life which is the greek noun zoe is employed by John 36 times, 36 times in his gospel account. No other New Testament writer uses this term more than John. In fact, in John's gospel, zoe occurs more than a quarter of all the New Testament references to this term. Needless to say, this is a major critical theme in John. The same holds true for the word light as well. Now, what we see in these two verses concerning Christ is that he is bringing life and bearing light. Let's consider these two themes in turn. First, we see our Lord Jesus Christ as the one bringing life. In him, John reports, was life. If we read this statement strictly in the immediate context of verses 1 through 3, the life John is declaring is in Christ is that dispensed at creation. In other words, all that makes up physical life, Jesus is the source. Life, in fact, does not exist. In its own right. It is not even spoken of as Leon Morris observes as made by or through Christ but in him. In him. Yet as John enlarges on this theme in his gospel we see that to say in him was life goes far beyond mere physical life. As James Montgomery Boyce rightly noted. In his commentary on this text, John is speaking of Christ's role in creation in one sense. But this is the groundwork for the spiritual interpretation of the word he unfolds in the pages of the gospel. It is true that John speaks of physical life here, but as the book goes on, he speaks increasingly of spiritual life. And the point is that just as Jesus is the source of physical life, so is he the source of the spiritual life that we receive when we receive him. And we see this very clearly throughout John's gospel. For instance, in John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus Jesus came as he declares of himself that we may have what? Life? And have it more abundantly. In John 3, 16. Those who believe in Christ shall not perish but have everlasting life. In John chapter 6, verses 51 and 53. Jesus gave his flesh for the life of the world. And those who eat his flesh and drink his blood, figuratively speaking, of course, will have life. And in, and in John eleven twenty five. 25. And in John 14, verse 6, Jesus makes the claim Himself that He is the life, which in both passages bespeak of the ultimate life outside of mere biological life, wherein sinners find life eternal in Christ, which delivers them from spiritual death and places them in God's redeeming favor. So then, in Jesus' Christ. Not only does all of life, as we see it and know it naturally on earth, owe its source and fountain in Him, but more importantly, life with God and life as a child of God owes its origin in Christ. Thus Jesus says, the aforementioned John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thus in Christ was and is life. But not only is Jesus the one bringing life, He is also the one bearing light. He is the one bearing light. Reading the rest of verse 4 and then on to verse 5. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. When John states that the life was the light of men, by the life, he's referring directly to Christ himself. In fact, as we've already stated, Jesus claimed this distinction about himself, which is recorded later in John's gospel. Furthermore, since in these first five verses of John's prologue, he is pressing on all our attention on who Jesus Christ is as the eternal Word of God, who is the eternal Son of God, then to declare that in Christ was life as the fountain and origin of all that life is, it should not surprise us that what John is revealing about Christ is that He is, in fact, the life. But, as the life... John now tells us that Jesus is also the light of men. He is the light of men. Now what does this mean? That Jesus Christ is the light of men. Well, perhaps the best way to understand what John means is to look at how Jesus himself understood this as his own claim. John chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. As the light of the world, or the light of men, meaning the same thing, this descriptive of our Lord is first of all implying that apart from Christ, men live in darkness. But it is a spiritual and moral darkness which make up their lives. It is therefore a darkness which keeps men in their sin and eclipses any redeeming knowledge of God. Yet when Christ came as the light of the world or the light of men, His life by word and deed pierced the darkness of this fallen world and revealed the truth as never before of God, man, man sin and salvation. It is for this reason that we read in 2 Corinthians chapter four and verse six that Paul speaks of gospel preaching as a parallel to Genesis chapter one and verse three, where God said, "Let light shine out of darkness." When the gospel of Christ is proclaimed, Paul asserts, that God has shown in the hearts of those he is saving, listen to this, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that only in the face of Jesus Christ, only by the revelation of who he is, do sinners see and understand the knowledge of God's redeeming glory. Or as Charles Hodge put it in his exposition of this text in 2 Corinthians 4.6, the clearest revelation of the fact that God is and what he is, is made in the person of Christ so that those who refuse to see God in Christ lose all true knowledge of him. You deny Christ, you're denying God. You refuse to see God in Christ, then you're cutting yourself off from seeing the true and living God. What did Jesus himself say to his own first disciples, to his apostles? In the upper room, he said to them, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's a pretty remarkable claim. That's pretty incredible. But not to believe on Christ, not to trust him, is not to believe God and trust him. Again, when the gospel of Christ is proclaimed, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is what God, in fact, shines in the hearts of those he is saving. So, Jesus says of himself, going back to John 8 and verse 12, That whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So as the light of men, Jesus Christ bears the light which brings forth the only life which will set men free from sin and reconcile them to God. And based on this reality, it is no wonder that John declares... As a matter of fact, in verse 5, look at it, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Underscore that verb, overcome. The verb translated overcome can, can also be translated as comprehend. In the King James translation, it's as comprehend. I believe it's even that, even in the New American Standard, but in the ESV, it's overcome. Well, (laughs) which one's right? They both are. Both meanings to this one single Greek word, while different in what they're saying, yet fit the context as a whole of what we see in John's Gospel recording the first advent of Christ. For instance, on. On the one hand, the spiritual blindness and ignorance of sinners points to the fact that when Christ came, they could not comprehend nor understand who he was and what he taught since their human reason alone was enslaved by sin. Consider indeed what John the Apostle will go on to tell us here in his prologue Verse 10, he was in the world. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. They didn't comprehend who he was by human reason alone. They saw that he was, well, different. There was something very different about him, but there was not the spiritual comprehension that certainly leads to salvation not resting in human reason alone so the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't comprehend it but on the other hand the mission of Christ sent by God into this world would not and could not be overcome by the evil of men and devils the devil and all his horde and this world that lies in his lap, they would not have their way with the Lord Jesus Christ, nor could they overcome his life, his mission, his deeds. They could not. The light shines in the darkness, John says. And the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it, nor indeed could comprehend it. When the Apostle John wrote these opening words in his record of the gospel of Christ, what we have to understand and appreciate is, is that he was reflecting on some 50 years of opposition and persecution that had not extinguished the light of Christ in the gospel. Despite the fact that men love darkness and hate the light due to their sin and will therefore go to great lengths to put the light out, yet... What was true by John's own witness in the first century? That light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it? That truth, that witness in the first century holds just as true for us, the church, in the 21st century, 2,000 years later. Jesus Christ and his witness as the eternal Son of God made flesh will not go away. His saving light continues to shine with omnipotent power and grace in the darkness of this fallen world. Man cannot escape the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. They cannot escape it. And because they cannot escape it, they will respond to it in one of two ways. For many... In this world, as has been since the first coming of Christ, they have rejected Him. Their rejection of Christ will carry them all the way to the judgment seat of our Lord where where they will in fact face Him and they will answer for their opposition to Him for all eternity in hellfire. Yet for others... Who John the Apostle himself tells us in Revelation 7 9 is a number too high for man to count. They have embraced the Lord Jesus as their loving Savior, following him as their living Lord, whose light they have not rejected, but in fact obeyed. But now let's make this very personal. What about us? Where do we fit in? Which of these two groups would be our distinguished association? When you hear the truth of who Jesus Christ is, as the eternal Son of God who is coming into this world to save sinners, what is your response? Are you trusting Jesus Christ as your only salvation? Or are you rejecting him? Are you running toward the light of his gospel or are you running away from it? Jesus said, as we've already heard this morning, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Are you following Christ trusting him believing him obeying his word looking only to him as your acceptance and favor with God your only righteousness before holy God are you are you following Christ or are you walking in darkness you see There is no in-between. There is no in-between. Which is the reason man hates the gospel as much as he does. There is no in-between. There is no other way of life and path to take but one of these two. One of these two. And so... In the light of everything we have heard and seen this morning concerning Jesus Christ, beloved, may God give us the grace to know for certain in which path we're plotting. Are we walking, living in Christ, or are we living? In darkness. There is no other but those two. And so may God give us the grace to see honestly, to see clearly exactly where indeed we are. Let's pray. Our heavenly.